when I voted this week, when I stepped into the voting booth, I had to vote for a local uh, House of Representative, a, a senator. I don't know what you guys voted for, but I had to vote one local House of Representative, well, U.S. House of Representative, one U.S. senator, and one president, right? Is that what everybody else had? Maybe some of you had three other things. But uh, nowhere did I look on a ballot and see Moses and Joshua. So let me be clear about that. I did not feel like, man, I don't know if I vote for Peter or Paul. That is not the way I felt when I walked in. Nor did I walk in there thinking, if, if this goes the way that I vote, America's going to be in great shape. I didn't think that either. I thought that no matter what, went ha- no matter what happened in the election, when I stand in this pulpit, I would continue to say, we need to pray for revival, regardless of the outcome of the election. That's the way I felt. It didn't matter who was president, we still would need revival. And yet, in that, I think the Lord made crystal clear for those of us who can understand the times and why we're doing a prophecy, if you can understand the times, America did make another turn away from the Lord. Not because of voting for a specific man. I don't really believe that men were actually on the ballot as much as biblical principles were on the ballot. Let me give you an example of this. In a historic, this is from CNN. This isn't from your Bible. This isn't from a conservative news organization. This isn't from Focus on the Family. This is from CNN. November 7th, day after the election. In a historic turnaround, the ballot box is showing America's shifting attitudes about same-sex marriage. After gay marriage rights died at the polls dozens of times in the past, actually way more than dozens, On Tuesday, they passed in at least two states. Rarely do popular votes reflect such dramatic social changes. CNN understands it, and they see it. They've gone on. Uh, Paul uh, Gukeri of the Human Rights Campaign says, we've lost at the ballot box 32 times, but we made history tonight. He goes on to say, Uh, Or ECNN says, uh, pollsters got a hint of the coming change. Recent national surveys have shown shifting attitude towards same-sex marriage with the majority of Americans now approving of marriages between men or women. This has actually all been changing in the last few years. Election Day brought two additional gains for proponents of same-sex marriage. Wisconsin elected America's first openly lesbian senator, Democratic Tammy Baldwin, and President Obama became the first president to openly support same-sex marriage and get reelected. Never happened in U.S. history. Never have we had one state pass it on the ballot and two pass it the same night. But it didn't stop there. Colorado and Washington, their voters elected for the legalization of recreational use of marijuana. All on the same night. And it was like the Lord crystallized that our nation is ready for the spirit of Antichrist, that we are getting more and more ready, that we'll accept anything as long as it's not from the Bible, which is what Napoleon said many years ago. He said, men will believe anything you tell them as long as it's not from the Bible. And this is generally where we're headed. And we've been headed this way, and as you know, uh, homosexuality is not worse than other sins. But you don't want to put uh, on the ballot, we want to make lying a national treasure, right? We want to make stealing from your neighbor a nationally protected treasure, right? But somehow we've considered this, and, and this actually speaks to where our nation is headed as well, uh, in some ways worse than the actual leaders. Uh, when I pray for revival in this country, I pray first for who? The church. It's our biggest problem. Our church is more of a problem than the actual general uh, society and even our leaders. Uh, this, uh, this one couple in Maine says, um, civil marriage laws allow gay and lesbian couples to obtain civil marriage licenses. Uh, both, me- <coughs> both measures also explicitly mention the right. Uh, thankfully, clergy won't have to do this. Uh, but it goes on to say that um, one of these couples, uh, they were able to have a ceremony and they had three Methodist pastors that even though their church said that they didn't believe in and support it, all three pastors were willing to do the marriage because they got to know them personally. So they were willing to actually say, we'll disregard the scriptures, so we'll do this, and now they'll actually have a legal ceremony. 
Folks, when the pastors in America, and this has been happening for quite some time, when the Word of God becomes rare, then we'll be right where Israel was, and we are ripe. Uh, when I woke up the morning of, uh, last thing I'll say on this before we get into our study, when I woke up uh, the morning of November 6th, uh, again, me personally not caring about the election of people, but the heart of the nation. Under, does everyone understand that? Where the heart of the nation is. And so when I read in my Bible that morning, I was in Jeremiah 6 on November 6th. And this is what I read. <clears throat> also, I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. So the Lord said, look, I'm going to raise yourself up and other pastors, and you're going to keep preaching the truth, and you're going to ask people to listen, but many will not listen. Matter of fact, most will not listen. And then in the 19th verse, the Lord says this, but I will bring calamity on this people, the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded, me, heeded my words, nor my law, but rejected it. Now, I had no idea that homosexual marriage was on the ballot in Maine and Maryland. I had no idea that legalization of marijuana was on the ballot of Washington and Colorado. Did anyone else know that before the election? I didn't. I don't keep up with Maine, Maryland, Washington, and, uh, but you notice that it's spread across the country. It's not one little area, it's the whole country. And I, told my, I came downstairs from my office, told my wife, I said, if I'm reading my Bible correctly, this was the morning of the election, I didn't even vote until that afternoon, I said, today's election is not going to go well. The Lord is telling me real clearly that the heart of this nation has turned and turned significantly since 9-11, because every state that's legalized these things, all of it's taken place. Now, all of this is important because as we look at end times prophecy, America is, I believe America's hiding in plain sight in biblical prophecy. I might do a Wednesday night just about America if you want to come. I'll share what I think the scriptures say about our nation and where you don't see our nation's name is significant because America... Uh, will not play a major, major role in the very, very end. Other, other nations will. I believe America will not. And, uh, and I think that the scriptures uh, support that, though I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. I'm just uh, sharing you. But I think if you look at what God did with the nation of Israel, uh, we, we, have, uh, we have things to be concerned. But all these things should lead us to what? To pray, right? So let's stand and pray for our nation. And I want to uh, pray for the persecuted church, and I want to pray for our soldiers that are around the world. Um, and soon it's going to get really hard. I think it's going to get tough, difficult for this nation to actually continue to have a robust, all-volunteer military. And I'll tell you why. Because in a few years, guys are going to wonder, what am I fighting for? Even the Marine Corps used to say they used to fight for God and country. But if we don't believe in God, then you're just down to country, Right? And then when you just get down to country, you just get down to paycheck. When you just get down to paycheck, well, there's other ways to put your life on the line, isn't there? And so it's, it, it, we're, we're, in, we're in a time that uh, I'm still praying the Lord brings revival, but if it doesn't happen in the church, it will not happen in the nation. Amen? So that's why I'm talking to you guys first, and me too. If we're not the ones on our knees, then you know, the unsaved world. Um, so let's pray. Father, we just bow before you, Lord. We know that you are righteous and holy. We know that your ways are faithful and true. We know that your word never changes. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We know, Lord, that you desire that all would be saved. You desire that you would turn the hearts of our leaders. You would turn the hearts of our pastors. You would turn the hearts of our different people all across this country, Lord, to turn to you and to bow our knees before you. Lord, we know that uh, it is your desire that we would worship you and you alone and not the dictates of our own heart and not the uh, dictates of our own mind and not the taste of, of what is new and what is accepted, but Lord, what is written. Lord, you said yourself many times, your earthly ministry, have you not read? Do you not understand? Is it not written? Lord, you said this so often to point out that it does not matter what people decide in a certain time or period. It only matters what you have said. And Lord, you have said that you desire purity and holiness. And Lord, I, I pray first for the church, Lord, that we would repent 
of any sin in our own life. Lord, how can we speak to others about the speck in their own eye or even a beam in their own eye, Lord, if we have the same specks and beams in our own? Lord, I pray that you would bring revival to the church, that we would be a people of prayer, that we'd be on our knees, that we would be earnestly contending for the faith, that we'd be sharing the gospel. Lord, I pray for revival in our nation, Lord, uh, from the White House, throughout Wall Street, all across the country, Lord, that we would see you open the eyes. Lord, whatever means, Lord, you've sent so many warnings and people still don't perceive they're from you. Lord, I pray you would open the eyes of our nation, that we would see revival. We pray this morning for our persecuted brothers around, and sisters around the world. Lord, you'd protect them. Like Paul and Peter, you'd deliver them from prisons. Lord, that you would heal their wounds and that you'd use their great testimony for the salvation of people in villages and communities in communist countries and Muslim countries and Hindu areas. Lord, all over the world, uh, you would use their great witness. And Lord, the blood of the martyrs would not be in vain, but Lord, it would be, uh, Lord, just a catalyst for more coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We pray for a great harvest of souls in these end times in which we live. And Lord, on Veterans Day, we pray for those that are serving in the military. We pray that you would save many soldiers, which you have. We pray that you would open their eyes, open their ears, and uh, that they would call upon the name of the Lord, even in foreign lands. We pray that you'd protect them, and Lord, give peace to those families who have lost loved ones, even in the last year, two, or even beyond. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me to a couple of passages in Scripture. Let us start. We'll just go uh, as they are in the Bible. Turn with me first to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. We'll try and stitch these four passages together and then we'll look at Prophecy 102, uh, a continuation of Prophecy 101, uh, which is not meant to be an academic thing, although it mirrors a little bit because we're trying to teach some foundational things that it's difficult to understand biblical prophecy if we don't all speak the same language. Wouldn't you agree? Even in foreign countries, you have to have a trade language, right? So we all have to have that we have the same framework that we're looking at. Uh, But Jeremiah chapter 9 Starting with verse 24, if you have your Bibles open, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24 and 25. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, number one, judgment, number two, and righteousness, number three in the earth. Notice that the Holy Spirit will later come and convict the world of these same things, won't he? Right? Righteousness, judgment to come, and the, and the revealing of Jesus Christ, the loving kindness of Christ. For in these I delight, says the Lord, verse 25, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. That's both Jew and Gentile that reject God. That's basically what the scriptures are saying there. All right, so that's Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. And remember that the Lord says he exercises three things. Loving kindness, the fact that you're here and alive today, you're experiencing God's loving kindness. Amen? Who would disagree with that statement? The fact that you're alive today, you're experiencing the loving kindness of God. Because not a single one of us woke up deserving to be alive another minute but God by His grace and His loving kindness. But He will also exercise judgment as He's continued to do, and greater judgment coming, and righteousness, He exercises righteousness through His own glory and through the saints that have been saved by Him. So now let's turn to the next passage. Let's turn over to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And we'll, we'll stitch this together and what it all has to do with biblical prophecy. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 25. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Third book of the New Testament. Verse 25, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting 
You can circle that in your Bible if you want to. Waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. We'll stop right there. There's actually more, but we'll stop right there. We have a man who understands the Lord's nature, who understands the Scriptures, and the Lord is speaking to him, and he's waiting to meet Jesus at his first coming. First coming. That's already happened, right? Now, let's move a little forward to the book of Acts. Over to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Hopefully what we'll begin to see is what I've been continuing to kind of lay the foundation that all the scriptures come together. They're all, they fit like puzzle pieces. They all come together. Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 6. Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 6. Therefore, these are the disciples, when they had come together, they asked him, him being Jesus, remember Jesus is just about to ascend back into heaven, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know definitively, that's what he, not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's our commission right now here in the church age. Amen? Look at verses 9, 10, and 11, though. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will also come in like manner as you saw him go up into heaven. Last place, turn to the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, last book of the Bible, last chapter of the last book, starting with verse 12. Starting with verse 12. Now, as I read this passage, see if you see any of the same character of God in this last, where we started in Jeremiah. And behold, I am coming quickly. We'll read that again. Behold, I am coming quickly. One thing you need to know about Jesus before I read on, you and I exaggerate about things. Russ exaggerated greatly about yesterday's football game. <laughs> he tends to do that at times. Jesus doesn't exaggerate. He has a yes that means yes, and a no that means no. He has a quickly that means quickly and a slowly that means slowly. He has a definite that means definite and a not happening that means not happening. Let's go on. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do this commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie, welcome to the United States. And much of the world, too. We're not alone. <laughs> That's why God said back in Jeremiah, if you read on it, goes, it names basically the whole world. Verse 16, I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the Spirit says to the bride, Come. And he who, is, uh, who he hears says, Come. And him who is thirsty, Come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of the book of this prophecy, 
God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testified of these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. I'll stop right there. We started in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says, Let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Do you understand and know the Lord? Do you understand and know that he's exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness? And that all that have already come before us and have found faith in Jesus Christ, whether it be Simeon or the disciples, have all been doing the same thing. They've been waiting on Jesus' every words. And once they receive them, they know what to do. And this is why we look at prophecy. Once we receive and understand the prophecy of Scriptures, we'll know what to do. We'll know where to go. We'll know how to exercise ourselves until he returns. We'll know that our lamp should be lit. And we'll be waiting like Simeon. We'll be going like the apostles. We'll be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we will be those in the 14th verse that are doing the commandments of the Lord when he returns. We'll be the faithful bride. We'll be the bride that actually is ready if the groom should come at midnight, and he will. We get into all that stuff, we'll see these things. Now, if you're here for the first time this week, you weren't here with us last week, by way of review, I just want to uh, take a look. Now we'll kind of use those verses as a foundation for looking at this Prophecy 102. What are we going to be looking at now going forward the next few weeks? So if you can go to the first slide, this is by way of review. I'm not going to spend much time on these things. Uh, We looked very briefly last week at the world's fixation with the end of the world. They don't look at it through the lens of Scripture. They just seem to have this sense that it's all coming to a head. True? They all know it. They write video games about it. They make movies about it. They make TV shows about it. They make comic books about it. They they know it's coming, but they'll kind of make it even a joke. And it's even a a cliche word, like, uh, you know, people will use the word Armageddon. To, uh, to just kind of use as a cliche. Oh, man, that's going to be like Armageddon, or, you know, something like that. So the world senses that things are coming to a head, but just like they sense they'll someday die, what do they do with that thought? <laughs> Out of the mind. You know, death and taxes comes to everybody, right? They know it's coming, but remove the thought process. All right, let's look at the next one. So that we looked at that. Uh, This is an eye chart, so I'm not expecting you to read all this. The the essence of all this is to say that basically, you don't have to try and read it, it's the essence of all this, say both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, the entire Bible is prophecy, Genesis to Revelation. The whole Bible is prophetic, though one quarter of the Bible, when it was written, dealt with future events, specifically future events, many of which have already been fulfilled many of which that have yet to be fulfilled, those that still remain. Uh, So some have been done, some have not, right? Just like, um, you know, keeping our football analogies, we'll all stay on the same page. You have a football schedule, right? My team has played nine, no, ten games. They have two left, right? So they've played ten games, they have two left. Ten of the games were Foretold in the su- all 12 were foretold in the summer, 10 have already taken place, 2 remain. So we have similar in the Bible, we have prophecy, the whole of Scripture's prophecy, but there are certain things that deal specifically with future times, future events, and, uh, and that's why we consider there's actually, when, when we say the word prophecy, most people are thinking future, and that's fine because there is that aspect of prophecy. All right, next slide. Biblical prophecy. Um, We looked at the fact that God alone, the key thing here is the third third bullet point, God is alone, God alone knows the end from the beginning. Some of the things he tells us quite a bit about. Other things he doesn't tell us. Even the disciples asked him for a definitive time 
when will you restore the nation of Israel to its kingdom? And he said to them, 2016. He didn't say that, did he? It's not for you to know exactly things, but you'll know what you need to know. And so God is the one that declares from the end, from the beginning, and they all, uh, they all are related to the Lord doing his pleasure. Now, what is his ultimate pleasure? We saw it back there in Jeremiah, that the Lord is ultimately going to glorify himself. Everything that will ever have been done or ever will be done will all bring glory to God. Justification, judgment, redemption, punishment, all these things will all bring glory to God. And the fifth one here that we looked at, and we looked at just a second ago as well, uh, is that these things would stir the believer up. We'd stir the believer up to know that Jesus is coming quickly, right? Quickly. And much quicker now than when your parents were alive. And much quicker now than when their parents were alive. And way quicker than when Paul and Peter were alive. Because we're a lot closer now, aren't we? I, remember I gave the analogy, four quarters in a football game. I don't know where we're at in the fourth quarter. I couldn't tell you if we're at the 15-minute mark, the seven-minute mark, or the two-minute warning, but I am confident we're in the fourth quarter. Now, if you want to play uh, a game of chicken with the Lord on where we're at in the fourth quarter and not be ready for his return, be my guest. I wouldn't advise it. I think it's a foolish thing to do. I think we should be wise virgins, not foolish virgins. Playing games, but eh, I don't think he's coming so, so soon. Next uh, slide, we looked at the Bible's 100% accuracy. Uh, this is an example of things that the Bible told about that the world did not believe until that they were unearthed with archaeological or historical finds. So again, the Bible many times over um, has told us things that historians said, oh, that didn't happen. And then years later, they would find a historical find and say, huh, what do you know? The Bible was right. Amazing. And it got a lot of these things that they didn't know. Let's look at the next one. What about fulfilled prophecies? We looked at some of these. Uh, for example, Cyrus the Great, 150 years before he was born. Bible not only tells us his name, tells us the country he will lead, tells us that he will overtake Babylon, tells us that he would actually uh, be used of the Lord to let the Jews go back and rebuild Jerusalem. I mean, just uh, uh, unbelievable things. And unlike the other world religions that have no specifics like this whatsoever, nor do they even have many prophecies, the very few that the world religions have are completely unreliable and nonspecific, but the Bible very specific. Exactly when Jesus, look at the, uh, the next slide, I, I outlined some of those, and the fact that uh, we know the precise time uh, of Jesus' death, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he'd be born of a virgin, uh, the rapid expansion of Greece, and that a ruler would, would die at the very height of his kingdom. By the way, last week I said Alexander the Great died at 33. Uh, most things will tell you 32. Some say 33, so don't nitpick on that. Uh, he was either 32 or 33, is the best historians. Uh, so some, some firmly believe he was 32. Regardless, uh, the Bible didn't say that. It said he would die at the height of his reign, and of course that his kingdom would be divided up into four kingdoms, which it was. And all these things took place, that Judah would be uh, in exile for 70 years. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 10 Israel's rebirth as a nation, that's happened in our lifetime. Well, before my lifetime, I was born in 1969, but last we read a hand raising, and a few of you were actually alive when Israel was rebirthed as a nation in 1948. So certainly in our generational time, uh, although not here in everybody's actual uh, birthday time. And we've seen the repopulation of Israel coming down out of the north, out of uh, Europe and out of Russia. So these things are all taking place um, really right now more than at any other time. Since 1948, now the stage is set. 
the stage is really, really set. Everything had to be in its proper place, and we'll um, uh, look at these things more in the next couple weeks. But I kind of think of it like this. Um, Let's say you wanted to be a doctor. There are certain prerequisites you have to accomplish before you can be a doctor. You can't graduate from high school and say, all right, I want to be a doctor now. You have to, well, you want to be a doctor, you've got to have an undergraduate degree. And you've got to have pre-med. And then you have to have residency. And after you, all these things are completed, then you can be a doctor. But the, the table has to be set in such a way that that can be accomplished. You can't, you can't get to that place, that end state, until the other pieces are first put in place. So you have to have prerequisites in place. And God has prerequisites that had to be put in place in the Scriptures. Many of them are in place, and a few now, what remains is all the big dominoes are ready to fall. The table's been set. The plates are out. All we need now is the food to be thrown down. And everything can start to fall into place, and it already is. Um, but what does all this mean for you and I? Let's look at the next, next slide. If, Tuan, you can pull that up. God wants you to know what will absolutely happen and explain it to others. I believe that. Do you believe that? God, if he didn't, he wouldn't have given us one quarter of the scriptures as prophecy, end times related, well, not all end times related, but one quarter of it related to future events, and a good portion of that is end times related prophecy. If the Lord did not want us to know these things, he would not have written them. Now, I want to be real clear. This does not mean that you will know everything. Did Jesus not make that pretty clear to the disciples? Yes. Would you agree with me that some of the prophecies are mysterious? Yes. Don't let anyone ever tell you they figured out every single thing about prophecy. That is not possible. Some of it will remain completely ununderstood and unknown until it pops. And then you're like, I get it. Some of those things were true of Jesus and the disciples. They could not understand what in the world he was talking about when he kept talking about his crucifixion. They didn't know what he was talking about until after it had happened. Then they got it. So some of those things are going to take place uh, that we don't understand. But I think there's a few things that we want to understand about prophecy. Let's look at the first one. Number one, prophecy is related to God's redemptive plan for Israel and the covenant he made with Abraham. Get all the way to the end, and Israel is still part of the big story, isn't it? Not going away. There's people that have this covenant theology that the church replaced Israel. Not true. The church has not replaced Israel. We have a dispensation. We'll talk about that. What that just means is you had uh, a time of Israel suspended time with the church, and God redeals with Israel one final time. So we have God's redemptive plan for Israel. Number two, his redemptive plan for his church and those that have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the church also includes many Jews that have been saved. Paul would be part of bullet number two and part of bullet number one, but as it respects to uh, the church age, He's part of bullet number two, though he, fir- he firmly understood. Matter of fact, he wrote a key portion about it in Romans about bullet point number one when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So the redemptive plan for his church and those that believe in the name of the Lord Jesus is part of end times prophecy. And that's where we have things like the rapture of the church, right? There's the redemptive plan for the church. Number three, Jesus' return for the saints is drawing near. Uh, The New Testament mentions the glorified return of Jesus more than 60 times. You know what's cool about that? How many weeks are in a year? 52. How many weeks are in a year? Yeah, 52 weeks, right? 52 weeks in a year. More than once a week, God wants to remind you he's coming back, that his son's coming back. More than once a week. So if you think it's getting old that I remind you on a weekly basis, it's not. It needs to be one point something. Those of you in the math, you can tell me what that is. 
All nine, all nine New Testament authors mention the second coming of Jesus specifically. How many? All nine. What's that tell you? It was on their mind and in their heart. Jesus quotes Daniel 7.13 directly. And in Revelation 22.20, which we just read, says, I am coming quickly. Uh, Jesus quotes Daniel and in the 70 weeks of Daniel, we'll look at that as well, how that, reply, how that relates to Israel and how it also relates to the church. And then number four, judgment. We saw this in uh, Jeremiah, that God is going to exercise judgment, and we saw it again in Revelation 22. The Lord is going to judge those that reject him. Now, you guys have heard me say many times, uh, when I was working in the corporate world and all my coworkers knew I pastored a church and I worked with them, they would like to ask me funny questions on Monday. What would you preach about? And the one of them asked me, did I send anyone to hell that weekend? And I reminded him, I can't send anyone to hell. They're already going there. I can only tell them not to go there. And he never asked me that question ever again. I, I can't send anyone to hell. Nor can you. The world's already on the path of destruction. All the world's going to hell unless they take the off-ramp of Jesus. Amen? So judgment comes every day around the world when it's appointed unto man to die, and after this, the judgment. How many people will die while I have preached this morning? Thousands upon thousands will die while we're here. All those that were without Christ will enter into judgment. All those that have been saved will enter into restoration, and they've been redeemed and saved from judgment. But a larger macro judgment is coming similar to the Noahic flood when God judged the whole world. Did he, not, did he judge a, a little bit of the world or the entire world? The whole world. So that judgment remains. And so the Lord wants us to understand it be able to explain it, be able to proclaim it. And really, we're not proclaiming it because we're like, ha ha, you're getting judged, I'm going to heaven, just want to let you know. No, it's so they would turn and get on the boat. Noah invited others to come. Moses, when they put the blood on the door, do you think he wanted all the Egyptians to die? No, he wanted them to apply the blood. But not everyone will. But judgment will be poured out on those that reject the Lord. Number five. That this world will surely end. And that eternity in heaven or hell will never end. This world has a beginning date and an end date. But once you've been born, you never die again. Or your, your soul will live forever somewhere. You'll either live in heaven with the Lord or live in hell. So this world will surely end. Uh, that can make you feel good even about America. You know, I am so thankful to be born in the United States. How about you? I'm thankful for, I've had 43 years of freedoms here. Some of you longer than me, some of you left. I've had 43 years of freedoms in the United States. Very thankful to be an American. But my citizenship isn't here. It's in heaven. I'm passing through. I'm more related to Christians in persecuted countries than I am to my fellow Americans. How about you? Because with persecuted believers, we're brothers and sisters, and we'll be part of the same family forever. But Americans, or when I was at a football game yesterday, I was one and the same with some of the same fans, but boy, when they started cussing and cursing, I could tell we're not in the same family at that moment, even though we like the same team. And so, this world will end, but eternity won't. And so, God wants us to understand from a prophetic standpoint that it would impact us to the point where we would do something. And it goes back to Acts chapter 1, that we would be His witnesses with His power and not sitting around doing nothing, looking up at heaven, but actually going out and proclaiming to people, hey, this is what will soon take place. But this is what Jesus has done for you. That's what the gospel is. It's good news. And then lastly, number six. 
this is not an exhaustive list. You could add to this list, but these are the things that I think are very important as it relates to prophecy. That God the Father, Jesus the King of Kings, and the Holy Spirit will be worshipped for all eternity by the spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham and the holy angels. When everything else fades away, number six will never stop happening. Won't that be glorious? When everything else is gone, there's no more elections, there's no more wars, there's no more divorces, there's no more arguments, there's no more any of that stuff. When everything else is gone, number six will never stop. And God wants us to know that these things absolutely... Does anyone disagree that any one of these six will not happen? Every single one of them will take place. It'll all take place. God wants us to understand it and be able to explain it. What use is it if I have great information if I don't let someone know? What would it be worth if you had cancer and I knew the cure and I said... I'm not going to tell them. They look busy. They look preoccupied with something else. I'm not going to share this. No. God wants us to understand it and explain it and proclaim it. All right, let's look at now some principles of biblical prophecy. Principles of biblical prophecy. Let's look at the first one, duality. You like that word? Duality. Duality. Uh, I have a mathematical um, definition here as well. But uh, passages in Scripture, essentially, passages in Scripture that speak to multiple things at the same time. You ever seen that when you study your Bible? Things that speak to more than one thing at the same time? Let me give you an example of this. Uh, you're probably familiar with Ephesians chapter 5. I could quote it, but I'll just go ahead and read it directly. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul writes this. Ephesians 5, starting with verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Guess what? 531 also deals with a man and a woman. And it always did prior to Paul mentioning that. But Paul said, oh, by the way, the Holy Spirit wanted to let me know know to let you know that it also is Christ in the church. So way back there in the garden, the two should be one flesh. Adam and Eve were picturing something that Paul would say that verse or that concept or that truth that the two are one flesh is also Christ in the church. Duality. And what the mathematical theorem here tells us is that you can actually replace certain objects, but the facts remain the same. Right? Duality. I am a husband, father, pastor, son, cousin, brother, which is actually more than dual. I am simultaneously anyone, remove one and put in the other title and it all works. All true at the same time. Duality. We see that in Scripture. So it's, under, it's important to understand that when biblical prophecy, some people, that if they're not really, uh, if they don't understand the Word of God, they'll pin a verse down to mean one thing. And many verses don't mean one thing. They're facets of a diamond. Depending on the angle, they mean multiple things, but they're all simultaneously true and never contradictory. Isn't that a beautiful thing about God? His things are simultaneously true, but never contradictory. Let's look at the second one. That was duality. Second one, Jewish. The Bible is a Jewish book written by Jewish men about a Jewish Messiah that would die and rise again, come again to Jerusalem, yet this same Jewish Messiah would graft in who? The Gentiles. You and I, those of us who are not Jewish, would be grafted in. It's important to understand that much of the Bible, as it relates to prophecy, has Israel at the forefront or the Jewish Messiah of Israel at the forefront, and to understand that some of the typology 
It's going to be from a Jewish perspective. Very important to understand that, because if you don't, you start to apply non-biblical concepts to a biblical book that was actually a Jewish book. Old Testament and New Testament. The writers of the New Testament, they're Jewish too. It's been well said that the New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament. So very important that the Old Testament is an entirely Jewish book. Now, when we say it's an entirely Jewish book, that doesn't mean it's not written to Gentiles. It is written to Gentiles. It's written to everybody. But it's written from a perspective, right? If you write a book from an American perspective, you can write it about the world, but it'll still be from an American cultural perspective, won't it? Generally speaking. Next word, or next principle, principle of biblical uh, prophecy, midrash. Anyone ever heard of this word? Very few people in the body of Christ have heard of midrash. Um, Most believers are not familiar with the term. I only became familiar with it a few years ago, uh, but I think it's been important in me understanding and and, and studying uh, the scriptures. It's the Jewish method of hermeneutics, which is biblical interpretation, It was used by the ancient rabbis in the times of Jesus and Paul. Uh, Even though a lot of the rabbis themselves weren't believers, they all subscribed to the same understanding of studying the Scriptures. Um, Now, the second sentence is my definition to try and explain Midrash, because Midrash, it's been well said that Midrash is better, better demonstrated than explained. Those of you that didn't like uh, uh, learning by having to read 56 chapters and memorizing every theorem versus those of you who said, oh, I love that stuff, but there's other people that said, no, no, I learned by touching it, watching it, seeing a video, seeing someone do it, then I understand it. That's kind of midrash. Midrash is better demonstrated than it is explained. But I, I tried to make an explanation. So what it does is it connects overlapping, suspended, repeating themes and time rather than a single linear view or a myopic view of something. It's it's holistic. It's able to see the whole whole of scriptures and understand that each of the scriptures complement, they counterbalance each other and explain one another. And the things happen in a repetitive uh, standpoint. I'll give you an example of this as well. In Matthew 2.15, Jesus requoted from Hosea 11 and 11.1. He requoted from Hosea 11.1. He said, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Anyone ever heard that verse? Hosea 11.1 is where it's in the Old Testament. Jesus requotes it in Matthew 2.15. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Those that study Midrash, even Hebrew scholars that did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, did believe that that verse had a repetitive theme to it. I'll give you an example. First, Abraham went down to Egypt, but did he stay there? No. He was called back to where? Canaan. Then Jacob comes down there, and the whole family gets stuck there for 400 years. Right? And then what happens? Out of Egypt I called my son... He calls Israel, by the way, sometimes God calls Israel his wife, sometimes he calls Israel his son, sometimes it's his daughter. Duality. (laughs) So it all applies because it all is that to the Lord. Sometimes he calls it the olive plant, sometimes it's the fig tree. I'm getting ahead of myself. So, but you see the repetitive theme. What What the rabbis understood is that Abraham then Israel, but they missed, there's a third Midrash, who was the last one to go down to Egypt and come back up. Jesus did. Of all things, God purposed in eternity past that Jesus would have to go down to Egypt to be called back up to Israel, where he would die on the cross. And he would be the greater fulfillment of a repeating cycle. And so Midrash is, a, is an incredible, once you understand that the Bible is that repetitive theme, Abraham, Moses, Jesus. You see how that works? 
And they understood, the, they understood the repeating theme. They understood that Mount Moriah would actually be touched again and again and again. They understood that, and they would see that the, the, that the passages had a deeper meaning that went wide and deep, more than just a singular meaning. You couldn't just say, oh, that verse just means when Israel came out of Egypt at the end of the Exodus. No, no, no. It goes all the way back to Abraham, but then it forwards up to Jesus. Let's look at the next one. Foreshadow. Uh, some, biblical, some biblical passages use a type of foreshadow to represent the final or the complete fulfillment. Now, we know that this is the case because the Scriptures themselves give us great examples of this. Jesus did this himself. Remember when he had Nicodemus in the middle of the night? Knock on Jesus' door. Huh. It's a wise, learned, religious man of the Pharisees. A guy who knows virtually the entire Old Testament, and he comes and he has questions for Jesus. Who are you? How do you know all this stuff? And Jesus told him something that I'm sure Nicodemus did not understand. He didn't see the type of the foreshadow, but Jesus now explains it for us. So we have Jesus' commentary on something that was a foreshadow that they didn't know was a foreshadow. John 3.14, and Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Nicodemus like, what? What did you say? I've studied that many times. Yeah, yeah, they all looked at the serpent. A lot of them were bit. Some of them lived when they looked at the serpent. Got it. Yeah, what, what? And how is that related to what our conversation? And Jesus is like, I'm the one. The serpent was a picture of putting sin on a pole and then staking it in the ground and lifting it up, and everyone would have to look at it. That's me. Watch. In just a short period of time, you'll see this will be fulfilled when I'll stretch out my arms. As Moses lifts up the serpent, I'll be lifted up. Right? Foreshadow. Fulfillment was in Jesus. The foreshadow was typology. Now, in all of these, duality, the Jewish perspective, Midrash and Foresh, they're all interrelated, aren't they? They're all interrelated, and they are constantly at perfect equilibrium one with another. Last one, and this goes back, this is related to Midrash, it's related to foreshadowing, and the last one is acceleration. All of the Bible is moving to a certain point. So as Moses or Abraham goes down to Egypt, Moses comes up out of Egypt. Joshua brings them all the way into the Canaan. They all come up out of Egypt. Jesus comes up out of Egypt. Acceleration. Each spin of the wheel is spinning faster as it gets near the end. And you have acceleration. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, give you another example of this, One second here. 1 Thessalonians 5.3. 2 Thessalonians 5.3. 2 Thessalonians 5.3. Uh, oh, it is first. Sorry. 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5.3. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains come upon a woman, and they shall not escape. How many women have had a baby? What happens to labor pains the closer you get to birth? They accelerate. They get more intense, and they become closer together. But for a while, they can be further apart and less severe. But the more you get closer, nothing. the, the, the four above, they keep happening. They're all related but you add the added element of throwing in speed and acceleration to it. 
Most of the prophecies about Jesus, you look at the prophecies about Jesus, some of the prophecies about Jesus are about the beginning of his life. He would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. Those are two examples about prophecies at the beginning of his life. Jesus was alive for 33 years. The vast majority of the prophecies of Jesus were related to his years of, uh, the last three years of his life till he, till he became 33 and ascended into heaven. Most of the prophecies about Jesus were the three-year ministry. The vast majority of those prophecies were about the last week of his life. So you see the acceleration point. All the, there was prophecies about his early life being born, but they accelerate when you get to the last three years, and they move even faster when you get to the final week. And so you understand from the Scriptures that all the prophecies in the Scriptures will accelerate as we get closer to the end. Let's look at the next, uh, next slide. Got to move quick. Now, views of biblical prophecy. There are people in the church, and, and many of them are born-again believers, that only subscribe to one of these four views. A preterist. A preterist thinks that everything that happened uh, prophetically happened in about the first 70 years after Jesus' ascension. So in other words, all the things in Revelation already took place in the 70 years, and it was all done under the Holy Roman Empire, or not the Holy Roman Empire, that would be the papal, uh, that would be when the popes come into play. But just the Roman Empire, under the Caesars, right? So they, the preterist thinks that when the temple was destroyed and ground into powder, AD 70 range, that that's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 24. That all that was related to that 70-year period, the early church period, is when all the, that's when, that's when like Peter was crucified upside down, Stephen was martyred, delivered into councils, they think already happened. So Revelation applies to the Roman, cruel Roman Empire would be like the cruel Antichrist uh, reign. And you have the idealist, they, uh, they look at Revelation, and they look at Revelation as it's all... Um, it's all typology. It all, uh, it all deals with spiritual truths and conveying ideas through imagery, right? You know, for example, you look at the, uh, the letter to the churches that Jesus would say, you know, talk about, I'll remove your lampstand, right? That he, he's using typology just, just to convey spiritual ideas, allegories and types, uh, to teach us spiritual wisdom. That's, that's the way uh, the idealist would view the book of Revelation. Then you have the historist. Uh, they look at the book of Revelation as prophecy about all the church age, just the 2,000 years we've been, all the church age. Not, not the 70 years after, just all the church age, anything that we can see that's already happened in the last 2,000 years. And then lastly, you have the futurist. Revelation is prophecy primarily about things that have yet to take place. I don't subscribe to one of these views. Hit the build slide. I, I subscribe to all four because they all work in harmony. If you subscribe to just one of those, you're going to have a lot of trouble with prophecy and you're going to be grossly misled, uh, I believe. Uh, it's a 360 view. Uh, Midrash includes preterism, idealism, hist uh, historicism, and, of course, uh, future. Scriptural text and context. This is important. Scriptural text and context, other related passages, fulfilled and remaining prophecies, each illuminate and reveal prophetic meaning. They all... The way you study the Scriptures is to know the Scriptures. Scriptures reveal Scriptures. Jesus will tell us what the passages mean. The apostles will tell us what these passages mean. Now, there's going to be still some mysteries. Wherever there's mystery, then you leave that alone. 
You let it lie there until the Lord reveals it. But where there's not, where it's very, very clear, uh, we know that some things in the Bible have already taken place. Out of Israel I've called my son. Did that take place? Yes. Did it happen again? Yes. Did it happen again? Yes. Did Jesus come to the earth? Yes. All right, that's done. No, he's coming again, right? So we see the repetitive nature of he came the first time. Simeon was waiting for his first return. We're waiting for his second return. So these things will take place again. And uh, all throughout the scriptures, you will see that there's history. There's future things that must take place. There is typology. But the typology doesn't have to confuse us. It's pretty clear. When Paul, you know, when Paul refers to the church being a marriage, were you confused by that? No. You understand it means the exclusivity of the relationship. You understand the intimacy of the relationship. You understand that it means that the two shall be one. And Jesus prayed this in John 17, that they may be one even as you, me and the Father are one. You would understand that Paul is using the imagery to say, this has always been a picture of Christ in the church. That's not confusing. It's helpful. Allegory and type don't distort the text. They illuminate it. Right? That's what we want to understand. Uh, last couple things, we're wrapping up here. This is an eye chart. I'm not going to go through every one of these. If you're interested in these slides, like I said, I'm glad to send them to you. Uh, these are a list of the scriptures that deal with prophecy. It's not an exhaustive list. There are little verses all throughout the scriptures that deal with prophecy. There's no way I can put them all up. But in big chunks, these are the biggest chunks that deal with prophecy. It's not an exhaustive list. You'll find prophecy even in the first five books of the Bible, for example. But the things that deal with the end times, this is the most exhaustive list of big chunks. And you see that I've got the Olivet Discourse up there. That's Jesus' personal commentary on the end times, where it's in three of the Gospels. We have exactly, you always want to start from Jesus' Olivet Discourse and then everything else, branch it back to frame it under what Jesus said. So Jesus specifically gave a teaching on the end time. That's why we started there last week. Do you remember? I read, Be Not Deceived, Matthew chapter 24. So these are the end time scriptures, and like I said, they're puzzle pieces. We fit them together. They make a beautiful, well-understood picture. There will be missing puzzle pieces, and that's done on purpose, and here's why, because Jesus wants us to be watching and waiting. If we knew everything, we wouldn't be busy about doing all the things he's asked us to do. Next slide, we have two left, and we'll come to a close here. This is what we'll be looking at in the next two weeks. Can you guys see that okay? Um, If you can't, this is church age, rapture, this line right here, 1 Thessalonians 4. This is where we're at, church age. Then this is the tribulation period. This is the second coming or the appearing of Jesus in Revelation 19, the millennium reign, and the new heaven and the new earth. The day of the Lord is also the time of judgment, day of Jacob's trouble, tribulation period, all of that, uh, all of that is included there in uh, the day of the Lord. So that's the prophetic timeline that we'll be looking at uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, next one. We'll start next week with the church age, right where we're at right now. So we're going to get directly into where are we at, what needs to take place, what are the next things on the prophetic timeline that may very well happen, I personally believe will happen in our lifetime. I'll give you a couple of hints. Syria's in the news. Iran's in the news. Russia's in the news. Israel can't stay out of the news. When they want to be out of the news, they can't be out of the news. Give you some hints. Libya, in the news. All these areas, things that must soon take place and will take place and are falling into place in the church age, apostasy, false prophets, false teachers, pastors marrying people because, well, you say you love each other. All must take place. All has to happen in the church age 
But in these last days, God will pour out His Spirit on us. He started it at Pentecost. He's doing it again. And there'll be one powerful release on the church right up until the end uh, of the Lord's return. So that's what, uh, those things we'll be looking at. Last slide, I thought this was a good... Um, this is the church built on Jesus Christ. In the, in the days which we live in, that there's a lot of false teaching, there's a lot of de- deception, there's a lot of, I really don't care. A little church built on the rock of Christ, better a little church on the rock than a big church built on sand. This is what the Lord wants us to understand. As we get near the end, you want to be anchored Anchored. Anchored to the rock. I even thought it was interesting when, when uh, the hurricane hit the Northeast one week before our election, two days before Halloween, which Americans spend more money on Halloween than any other holiday but Christmas. Halloween's second favorite for spending money. One week before it, I even thought it was interesting the name of that hurricane. Sand. Sandy. God's like, your nation's built on a sandy foundation. Was I the only one that saw that? So I was praying one morning, and the Lord just, it just, I was like, Sandy, there's something in that name. Sandy. Week before our election, we're, we're on sand. Our pastors are on sand. Our nation's on sand. God's like, Sandy, that's your foundation. Shifting sand. Watch how houses move on sand. Watch this. Water comes in. Sandy. Why don't you build on the rock? Amen?